Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Viewers of the television series Chernobyl will recall the horror and fascination of nuclear technology when it runs out of control. Sergei Plokhy, who is a professor of history at Harvard and himself a Ukrainian, has written a fascinating book about this subject. It's called Atoms and Ashes, from Bikini Atoll to Fukushima, and it covers a series of nuclear disasters from the 1950s to the 21st century. It's an extraordinarily gripping story, and I'm delighted to be joined by Serhi today. Serhi, welcome. Well, Arthur, uh, thank you for this introduction. It's a pleasure to be on, on the podcast. Well, Serhi, as I said, um, rather like that TV show Chernobyl, uh, I think lots of people may have started watching that thinking, I'm not really sure if I really care very much about this story. It's just a bit of history, but it's incredibly gripping. There's something about the terrifying power of nuclear technology uh, and the fact that it does go wrong, I'm not going to say often, but it does go wrong, that m makes it fascinating in a rather sinister way. Well, uh, certainly it is a work of uh, history, or at least the way how I intended to write that book. And it deals with six uh, major nuclear disasters that took place between 1954 and 2011. But it is a sort of a history that is very relevant for us today as we face uh, challenges associated with the climate change. And we look for the ways how best we can address them to, to survive as a humankind. And uh, uh, nuclear, it's one of the directions that has been suggested both by scientists, uh, governments, and, and again, it's up to public to decide whether we want to go that way, whether we want to um, increase and probably dramatically increase the number of reactors, or we want to look for, for alternatives. And um, this book of history was designed also as being more just a book of history, but a contribution to the current debate. Yeah. And of course, in a way that is very personal to you, that current debate has come right up the agenda this year. So Russia invaded Ukraine, your home country. So in so doing, there was fighting around Chernobyl, but also in the other huge nuclear plant down at Zaporizhia. And that was a reminder to us that even in environments where perhaps the science and the geology is all very propitious for nuclear power, unexpected events can create terrible danger. Uh, exactly. And uh, the, the whole story was, was and, and continues to be very personal for me. I wrote a book on Chernobyl uh, and certainly visited the area more than once, so felt really closely attached to, 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 to the place, to, to the history of the place, to what has been happening now there. And then I come from the part of Ukraine, which is called Zaporizhia, which is very close to the nuclear power plant. And uh, when I was working on this book, of course, I started to work on it a few years ago, I couldn't imagine that uh, on top of every other uh, issues and, and potential problems that we have with nuclear energy that contributed to the accidents of the past, we would get also a situation like we got in February and March in Chernobyl and Zaporizhia, where a warfare, conventional warfare, would come to the site of the nuclear power station, nuclear sites. Yeah. And I've got to say that that, that thought alone made me rethink a lot of my attitudes to nuclear power when we think about 
for example, the idea of Iran having a civilian nuclear program, which could be, you know, administered under United Nations auspices, you know, with with inspectors and so on. But that doesn't really protect you from these sorts of uh, geopolitical crises such as we're seeing in Ukraine. Uh, exactly. And uh, um, the, the life continues to surprise us again and again. So there was a Chernobyl disaster in 1986. And uh, the argument there was that, well, it was an outdated Soviet technology. The um, improvements were made. Uh, some of the Chernobyl-type reactors are still with us, but allegedly they were made safe. And we can continue with the development of the nuclear energy. And then comes Fukushima. No one expected that, okay? Tsunami and, and, and earthquake. And now it's war. What, uh, what unites all of these accidents and also uh, three other accidents that are discussed in the book is that it is very much about us, about humans. And in each of these cases, we surprise ourselves by making ill decisions, terrible mistakes, or engaging in the criminal acts like like the act of taking over of the nuclear power uh, sites in Ukraine uh, this year. Yeah. Each time we put ourselves in harm's way again and again. And the next the, the next accident or next close call when it comes probably will come again from from quite unexpected today uh, direction. Yeah. And one of the things I found fascinating about the book is that it covers such a wide range. You know, you, we've mentioned Chernobyl, we've mentioned Fukushima. So I think many people, when they think about the Chernobyl disaster, maybe they say, yes, but that was a Soviet system. It was a system that didn't deal well with problems. You know, people didn't feel able to report problems upwards. But, you know, uh, you've got Japan as a modern democracy, highly, highly technical, uh, you know, perhaps the, the most accomplished technological power on planet Earth. And then, of course, you've got a case study from Britain, which has its own culture of, of you know, democracy and, and debate and so on. So I think it's very interesting that the sort of cultural excuses that people sometimes use to say, yeah, but that was that was a particular problem. Your book kind of destroys that that excuse that that it seems that we can have these disasters in almost any cultural or political context uh, exactly and uh, um, that book uh, started with a question not with an answer that, that that you just formulated the question was how we as human beings in <clears throat> different political contexts social contexts cultural contexts how we deal with the issue of nuclear energy. And I decided to write this book exactly to answer that specific question. And the answer that I got is that, well, we are all vulnerable. We try to learn lessons. It would be unfair to say that there is no, that, that process is not taking place. But the system is so complex. There is such category as normal accidents. Normal accidents, that accidents that happen in very complex systems, whether we want that or not. And certainly nuclear power is one of those uh, complex systems. And I would say the most complicated, sophisticated, and most dangerous way of boiling water that the humankind has invented or, or came up with. Absolutely. Um, I mean, th there are so many lessons which, you know, are, are lessons for humanity that, that don't have to be about nuclear power. Um, 
But one of the things is which we see, and again, it, it, it's in all different cultures, so you can't talk, say it's particular to one political structure, is this reluctance both by political leaders but also by you know senior managers and people operating these these plants to uh, be transparent about problems when they arise and i was fascinated um by you've got the, the case study uh, which i think a lot of young people in britain won't be familiar with which is wind scale which was you know a a nuclear disaster in england could you say a bit about that story uh, yeah, it is extremely interesting story because um, there is there is a multiple sort of a cover up, and it comes from different groups and uh, for different reasons. Uh, on the one hand, you have a very very smart, but also very arrogant in that in that smartness uh, scientists and engineers at Windscale, who. Don't even bother to inform the uh, authorities, uh, industry, and, and political and otherwise about a major, major nuclear crisis when the graphite in the reactor that was producing fuel for the hydrogen bomb caught fire. They so, sort of know that they are all what Britain got, so there's no point to bother anybody else and ask for advice or ask or, or share information because. They're the brightest of the brightest. They're there to, to solve the problem that they created or created on their watch. So the information that things were so bad went to the, to the authorities a few hours before the crisis was resolved, which is, which is quite bizarre. And then there is a second layer, and this is about the politics and, and political leadership. And um, the, the point there is not so much to hide the, the accident from the British public, which is, of course, part of the story, but to hide this accident from the Americans. Because uh, McClellan, he wants a partnership, nuclear partnership between U.S. and U.K. of the sort that Churchill was able to forge, to create with FDR during the Second World War. And he's concerned that if Britain appears that they actually don't know what they're doing, that they're not sophisticated enough, safety culture is not there, technologically they're not uh, not on the same level or inferior to the Americans, Americans would not share with them their own nuclear secrets and would not go for, for a sort of a joint nuclear program, which of course would cost Britain a lot of money. And the cover-up is there. He appoints a special commission. Then he suppresses part of the report that was issued by that commission. And for one and uh, only reason, to, to impress the Americans, which is, again, another, another very bizarre reason for that, uh, for that secrecy and cover-up. So I wanted to talk a bit more about Fukushima because one, of course, it's the most recent event, but also I think it's one that until I'd read your book, I hadn't realized just how close to a kind of epic catastrophe this was. Um, could you perhaps explain uh, the sort of the basic challenge that that unfolded and, and the terribly difficult decisions that the managers in that plant had to make? Uh, Fukushima is truly a horrifying accident because there is more than one accident. 
there are, uh, depending on how you look at that, from three to four reactors going in the partial meltdown. The buildings are being blown up. The poor crews and engineers there, they're trying to do their best, but they don't know what where for, they would be hit next. Yes. And what happened there was that uh, the earthquake happened in, in, in Japan every second or every third day. So it's not something completely new. They they're no. were prepared for, for that kind of emergency. So the moment the earthquake happened, they shut down uh, their reactors. But what happened next was, of course, that the earthquake produced tsunami. And uh, tsunami uh, flooded the territory of the plant, and uh, the emergency generators were positioned on the lower levels of the plant, and they were flooded as well. And as a result, what happened was that the reactors were not producing electricity anymore. The electric lines that were bringing electricity to the site were damaged and destroyed, and one needed electricity to power the pumps that would provide water to cool the reactors. And without electricity, the uh, heat was growing and the, the meltdown or partial meltdown of those reactors started one after another, one after another. Because what Fukushima is about in terms of the lessons to be learned, it's not only that it's a bad idea to build the uh, reactors on the ocean shore, but there is it points to the danger of the reactors and uh, reactor fuel days, months, weeks, years, even centuries yeah. after the reactor was shut down. So what happened in Chernobyl in, in uh, February and March of this year? As the result of the warfare, the um, uh, electrical lines that were bringing electricity to Chernobyl site were damaged. And they still have on the site the uh, fuel uh, elements from reactor at Chernobyl that was shut down in the year 2000. But they still need to be cooled. They still need cold water. They still need pumps, and pumps need electricity. And once that electricity was uh, cut down, the main, the main danger in, in Chernobyl this year was not just the fact that it was taken over, it was a hostile takeover, that there was warfare taking place on the side, but that the electricity was cut to the, to the side. Uh, luckily, they had uh, the, uh, um, this backup generators, they had enough diesel to power them. Uh, but that points to the, to the danger that uh, nuclear energy um, really still hasn't and, and brings to us decades after the nuclear power plant was shut down. Indeed. So one of the things that we are hearing, certainly here in the UK and, I, and maybe where you live in North America, Serhi, is discussion of a new generation of nuclear power, which would be these small-scale uh, atomic energy plants. Um, is this in any way less risky or a better idea, a better way of boiling water? Uh, well, the opinion of the of the experts are really, really divided on that issue. One argument is, okay, if we have smaller reactors, even if an accident takes place, it will be a local accident, nothing like accidents at Chernobyl or Fukushima or wind scale or Three Mile Island. 
the counter argument says, okay, but there will be much more of those reactors. So the chances of something going uh, wrong would go up. Yeah. My my own perspective on that, which is very much informed by the research that I did on the um, this major six accidents, is that on the one hand, it's it's a welcome development, because what we are talking about is that for the first time in the history of the nuclear age, there will be reactors specifically designed civilian purposes for for boiling water in this particular case yeah because every other single every single reactor that we have today and there are approximately 440 in terms of their design they are trying to use the designs uh, of the reactors produced for the military purposes either for the production uh, of the fuel for nuclear weapons like was the case at twin scale and and chernobyl or the reactors that we used to power submarines, and that's Three Mile Island and Fukushima and, and most of the so-called water-water reactors. Yeah. So the new generation of the reactors has to be safer because it is not something which is just uh, adapted, adjusted from, from the military design. But there is another important point that again comes from my research is that um, with any technology, especially with the technology as complex as nuclear, there will be a period of, of a learning curve. There will be a period of the maybe two decades or maybe three decades where there will be accidents. Most of the accidents, uh, nuclear accidents, happened during the first two or three decades of the nuclear age. Any new technology, especially complex technology, would go through that period. Every new accident, it actually produces a pause in the development of nuclear industry because the public gets really scared for a very good reason. After Fukushima, the Germans decided to abandon nuclear industry altogether. After Chernobyl, very few new reactors were commissioned. And most likely that would also happen with the new generation of the reactors. And that raises the question of how much time we are prepared to, to wait how soon those reactors would, would go online. And once there are accidents, whether we are prepared to tolerate those accidents and continue developing nuclear industry. Because if we are not, then again, the argument would be we have to look for a safer, le- less risky yeah. uh, ways of boiling water. And it's great that you mentioned the German decision. Of course, many have criticized that pointing to the fact that Germany has no uh, history of earthquakes. You know, the geology of Germany is nothing like Japan. In the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we look at the way that Germany is over-dependent on Russia's energy, particularly its, its gas exports, and the degree of power and influence that that has given President Putin over Germany and, and some, some of the other countries in Europe. So uh, f- perhaps moving slightly away from the the book, but in your perspective as a as a as a historian, as a as a Ukrainian, what is your sort of analysis of of how nuclear energy fits in this kind of geostrategic question? Uh, well, I, I write a little bit about that in the conclusions to the book, and I uh, consider the German path, the German way, really to be something that. It's it, it's a major mistake yeah. that the rest of the world shouldn't shouldn't repeat because what we see there is an example of panic. 
Yeah. And yeah. you are shutting down and abandoning the reactors that uh, whatever um, ecological damage they were to create, that it was already created in terms of production of the concrete and, and, and steel and, and so on and so forth. And uh, in the world as a whole, we have 10% of the electricity produced now through nuclear. Yeah. Shutting down them now and creating this opening for return of the coal because that's what is happening in Germany today. Yeah. This is this is a, the the worst decision that that one could could make. So my argument overall is that we should actually not run away from the nuclear energy that we already have. We should, in fact, invest in the safety and security of the nuclear energy that we have because it is, at this point, is clean energy. What I am saying is when we look for the investment for the future, we should be very, very careful and very considerate in terms of where we make those investments. The uh, technologies of the 21st century, renewables, solar, wind, and so on and so forth, they have to be prioritized at least. And the technologies of the 20th century, which is nuclear, which is extremely risky uh, in terms of the future investments, my advice is to think twice. Well, I think, uh, Sohi Porky, that's a brilliant point to end this conversation. Sohi's book, Atoms and Ashes, From Bikini Atoll to Fukushima, is widely available and is a brilliant read. Sohi, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker today. Well, thank you very much, Arthur. It was a pleasure. Remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Arthur Snell, with audio production from me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker is produced by Jelena Sofronovich and Jacob Archbold. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production.